Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So can parents agree that when you gather around other parents, you often hear them talking about their teenage behaviors, rebellion, and also the defiance that sort of goes along in the family unit. Sometimes teens can also go through that experience of experimenting with this different substances in their early years. And that's the topic that we're going to be diving into today. To help me answer some questions on adolescent behavior is Dr. J. David Hawkins. How are you going today, Dr. David? I'm well. Nice to hear from you. It's so good to have you on the show. And I think it's such an important topic that we haven't really dived into that much on the show, especially when it comes to teenagers. Um, We talk about preteen, we talk about um, even younger than that, we talk about primary school kids, but we don't usually look into teenagers a whole lot. And I think it's something that we totally miss out on the show until today. So it's so good to have you joining me on. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about yourself and sort of how you got into talking about adolescent behavior? Ooh, sure. Uh, I am uh, some. I'm uh, an emeritus professor uh, of prevention uh, in the School of Social Work and the Sociology Department and the Educational Psychology Department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, I am emeritus now because I'm retired. Uh, but during my career, I had the opportunity to. to a great deal of research on children growing up. I've been following a panel of youngsters that we started following when they were six years old. Uh, They're now in their 40s. And we did uh, interventions, preventive interventions with the children in our classrooms compared to control classrooms. And we have found that these interventions had long-term positive effects on children's development, including reducing adolescent substance misuse, Uh, in the teen years, criminal behavior, uh, in the early uh, uh, 20s, and having big impacts on economic outcomes and reducing mental health problems. So it's been wonderful to be able to do that. And now we've seen results that show that the kids in our project who were in the uh, intervention classrooms now have their own children. And we studied the firstborn children of those kids as well as the those who were in the control group. And we see significant reductions in the next generation in developmental delays, in, uh, in uh, the likelihood that they will use substances by the time they're 18. And uh, their teachers who can't know that these kids were uh, parented by kids who were in an experiment uh, 20 years or so ago, uh, the teachers are rating these children of our children 
as better academically, better in terms of social emotional learning and better cognitively. Uh, and uh, so it's really exciting to see that although we know crime and drug misuse and teen pregnancy, those kinds of things run in families. We now know that we can do preventive interventions with young people through working with their parents and their teachers that will have effects not only on their lives, but on the lives of their own children. You've also written a couple of books as well, talking about the communities and talking about the um, action that sort of takes on in how communities work. So how has that, how has community really developed in the area of bringing families together and also talking about families? We really began focusing more narrowly on families and schools, but we recognize that the context within fam within which families and teachers operate is really the community. And communities are quite different from one another. There mm -hmm. are different resources. There are different values and often in different cases. There are different problems. In some communities that are high-income communities, uh, easy access to money means easy access to alcohol and drugs. In, in other communities that may have lo less uh, income in those communities, it's harder for young people to get certain kinds of things like alcohol because they don't have the money. Uh, but in those communities, sometimes we find that violence, delinquent behavior are more likely. So the problems are somewhat different in different communities. And also the resources are different and the degree to which people know how to uh, work together and how to use those resources to work collaboratively to ensure that the environment is a healthy environment for kids to grow up in became important to us. And we developed a system for thinking about prevention at the community level called Communities That Care. And we used this system in many communities in the US that's been used in four communities in Australia uh, data have been compared for the, from that, uh, those four communities with national survey data. And uh, it's very clear that when communities use the communities that care system, that protective factors get strengthened in those communities, risk factors are re reduced in those communities, and behavioral outcomes uh, be, are better, less drug use, less delinquent behavior, et cetera. And that's definitely developed further into the project that you have, which is now communitiesthatcare.net as well. Yes. And that's really developed. Did that come from the book or did it start before the book? The book? Well, the, the book was the idea. The book mm -hmm. said, this is what we're planning to do. And we also did a movie at the time that said, this is what we're planning to do. And mm -hmm. I just looked at the movie uh, within the last six months. And I was so happy because we did it. It's it's it was that movie was made in the early 1980s. That book was done in the early 1980s. We were able to do communities that care not only to do to work with many communities doing it because we developed it in the field working with communities, but then we had the opportunity with funding from the National Institutes of Health in the United States to do a randomized controlled trial of communities that care that involved 24 communities across seven states matched on crime rates at the beginning and then randomly assigned to either get communities that care or not get trained in communities that care. And we were follow, we followed a panel of about 4,000 plus children from all mm -hmm. those communities forward, and they're now in their mid-20s. And we're seeing significant reductions 
again in alcohol and drug misuse, in criminal behavior, uh, as well as a significantly uh, in significant increases in uh, the proportion of young people who actually finish university, go on to university and college, uh, as well as reductions in the state of Pennsylvania where they do communities that care on a statewide basis. We've compared a half, about half of the communities in that state where they uh, have done community secure with the half that haven't done community secure. And we're also seeing significant reductions in depressive symptomatology. So when you do prevention that reduces risk factors in families and communities and schools uh, uh, for uh, behavioral health problems and mental health problems, you get outcomes in a wide variety of areas that uh, are all predicted by the similar risk factors and uh, inhibited by the same protective factors. It's, a, it's amazing to see the difference between one that gets health and one that doesn't, because it's such a, it's such an interesting experiment to also talk about, because it's also a whole life that you're changing, a whole generation that you're also looking into and developing that change for. And it's, and it's community-wide. What I'm talking about is not just picking or identifying individuals who are at risk or have a hard time or came from a certain background or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're talking about community-wide change. And when I'm talking about these differences, they're population-level differences, the proportion of the population that has problems with drugs or alcohol uh, compared to the proportion uh, in a controlled community that has those same problems. So we're really we're really making change at the community level, and that's why we call it community secure because it's a it's a widespread uh, mm -hmm. intervention. It's it's amazing looking hearing about the work that you do and hearing about the communities that we're looking into today, and also the idea of the substance use being changed. And I think that's such an important thing because it really relates to what we're talking about. But before we really dive into it, we love to start off with a little icebreaker just to get to know you as a person before we get to see you as a professional, just taking on the questions as we go along. Um, so start off, we'd love to do a have you met sort of questionnaire and just share the first thing that really comes to your mind when I ask you different questions on the topics. Um, so the first one is a favorite book of yours. <laughs> I have two favorite books. One book is called Lonesome Dove. It was published in 1985. It was written by Larry McMurtry. And it's a book about, about the 1800s in the U.S. when the Wild West was still the Wild West. And there are two Texas Rangers, one named McRae, one named Call, and they are both retired. And they decide that they're going to take a herd of cattle from Texas out to the West Wyoming and it's about that cattle drive and about though that friendship between these two guys and about aging because they're both retired guys kind of like me and they're trying to figure out what their lives are like and whether they're what are they doing with their lives etc so it's really about old age death unrequited love and also about friendship the friendship between these two guys and in fact one of the guys asks his friend if he dies when they're way out west, will he take them back, him back all the way to Texas in a wagon 
dead, a, a corpse, basically, to a little place where he and his, the woman that he loved, but never was able to marry or be with permanently, where they first got together. And, and this friend does it. The other guy takes him all the way back. So it's a wonderful book. If, no, if you haven't read Lonesome Dove, I think it's still a great book to read. The other one is called Speed and Scale. It's by a guy named John Doerr. And it was written in 2021. And it says it's about how do we solve the climate crisis we're in right now. And it's really a wonderful book in that he's saying by 2050, we could solve this problem, significantly reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide by electrifying transportation, decarbonizing the grid, fixing food, eating less beef. It's not only bad for us uh, as individuals, it's bad for the environment, beef production, uh, protecting nature and cleaning up industry. And it's really an instructive book. My family, my son is uh, my ex-wife and I and our son, Quinn, who is 42, and our daughter, Nora, who's 37, have a book club. And we're reading this book together and trying to meet once a month to talk about it. Now I'll get back to that. But uh, it's a great book. And uh, it's a very timely book for people who are concerned about how do we solve this environmental problem we have of global warming. Wow. I think both books are very very differing in um in the topics to talk about i i love the idea of the lonesome dove because even though it is written quite a while ago it's also has the morals and has the message that's very similar to a lot of books um when it comes to unrequited love when it comes to just that companionship that everyone really looks into it's very similar to a lot of other books that I mean, in any other time. So I love the idea that even though it's written quite a while ago, the message is still very much the same. Larry, as McMur Larry McMurtry was a great writer. He, he was, he's a wonderful writer. I definitely will have to look him up afterwards. I don't think I've heard of him, but I will go and look him up straight You'll after like this. <laughs> You'll do it. You'll like it. Uh, the next one is a favorite movie of yours. This is going to date me as well. This movie came out, I think, around 1975, and it's called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It starred a guy named Jack Nicholson, and uh, he was a guy who had been uh, put in prison, and he thought if I could get out of this jail and get into a mental institution, it'd be an easier place for me to live. And he manages to do that, and he gets put into a mental institution, and he's kind of a wild and crazy guy. And there's a nurse that, in that institution who's... Or, People who've ever seen this movie remember the, the name uh, Nurse Ratched, and that was her name. It was Louise Fletcher was the act, actress in it. But uh, it's just about his attempts to instill freedom and excitement into the lives of these mental patients, and her fear of his individualism and his creativity and trying to clamp things down. And it's uh, it's one of the best movies ever made. In fact. Uh, it's it's one of the highest rated movies in the United States still to this day. It's in the Library of Congress, et cetera. And again, if you can get your hand on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I guarantee you, you will love the movie. You will enjoy the movie. You will be rooting for the for the the bad guys in a way. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it's it's really a it's a lovely lovely movie. And, uh, sad in the end, but uh, 
also redeeming in the end. So that's my movie of choice. I think I've seen the beginning of it, but somehow I never managed to get to the middle or the end. Um, I love the way that Jack Nicholson comes in because he always plays those characters that are just so crazy and so insane, but he does it so well, which is always really nice to see. And I think it's so hard for um, to find actors that can do so much the way that he does it. So um, the next one is a favorite podcast that you have. You know, I I miss the newspaper. Uh, we, you know, we're moving into podcasts. And the podcasts that I probably watch the most, we have a, in the U.S., we have National Public Radio, it's called. It's a private organization, but it uh, does receive a little bit of government support, supported mostly by uh, contributions. But they have, they do the news. And every day there's a podcast, NPR News Now. And if I don't have time to do more than that, that's the podcast I listen to. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I, think we sort of underestimate the power of news and the power of current events that we're supposed to, especially when it comes to podcasts. And it's so rare to find a podcast that really does talk about current events, not something that sort of mm-hmm. deals with past trauma or deals with things like that. So it's nice yeah. to see that those kind of podcasts still do exist. Yeah. Um, my granddad is very much the same. He does not like anything other than a newspaper every morning. And that's always his tradition. So um, yeah, trying to get him to listen to something instead of read something is very difficult, but it's um, it's always something interesting to sort of talk to him about. And I think podcast I sort of send him a few episodes every now and again on podcasts that are talking about the current events and then he sends me clippings of newspapers. So it's a very <laughs> good dynamic that he and I have. That's great. That's great. Um, the next one is a famous role model that you have. I don't know how famous these people would be because one of my role models was my mentor. It was the first guy who hired me at the National Science Foundation to become a, a staff member of the Antarctic Research uh, Foundation. And uh, to uh, my job, then I was just a college student, a university student. I took away, I took six months to go to New Zealand uh, to uh, help outfit scientists going to Antarctica. And uh, the guy who hired me for that job was named Phil Smith, and he, he had been the deputy science advisor to uh, President Jimmy Carter, uh, he was also the head of polar programs at the National Science Foundation. Anyway, why he was so valuable to me was if he taught he taught me the importance of building a strong social network of mentors who could help guide me through life. And he was one of those mentors. So he he was one of my role models. Another role model is a guy named David Farrington, who is probably the most published criminologist in the world. Uh, he's at University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, and he shows me that you can keep going and going and going and going and writing and publishing important answers to important questions right on through retirement. Uh, he's a role model for me, although I must say that I am not following him in continuing to write and write and write and write and publish in retirement. I'm trying to, uh, do the thing that's related to my third famous, uh, world model, and that's a guy named John Pride, P-R-I-N-E. And I don't know how 
famous he is in Australia, but any singer-songwriter in America will tell you John Prine is probably their favorite singer-songwriter, and he's mine, because in my retirement, one of my goals is to play more music and to write more music and to, to perform more music, but mostly to jam and play music with friends uh, more. And so John Prine just is an inspirational songwriter. Well, that's... um. It definitely shows your hobbies as well. I think. Yeah. Um, I love the work that you were talking about at the beginning, the first role model that you had. Um, I think especially just looking at that and looking at the opportunity that sort of led to where you are today is definitely an amazing thing. And not a lot of people sort of take on college students now. So to be able to see that they're taking on college students back then and just taking them under their wing is amazing. Yeah. Um, it's so difficult to find someone as inspiring as you would describe those three people, uh, especially in today's day and age. I think it's a little bit harder to find mentors as easy as it was back then to sort of have people you can inspire to be. Um, unless you're really looking, I'm not really looking, but um, that's probably what it is. But it's it's so nice to see the opportunity that sort of led to um, how that influenced a lot of your work today. Uh, the last one is a famous favorite course that you've completed. I uh, uh, I would have to say that the most important course I ever completed was the course of study uh, and the completion of my dissertation, my PhD dissertation. Uh, that course of study taught me a lot about people and about sociology. It was a PhD in sociology. And I grew up in a time uh, where people probably, again, don't remember this except for reading about it. But in the 1960s, in the late 60s, when we had uh, big demonstrations against the war in Vietnam and, uh, and, and uh, the country was in great conflict at that time. And uh, it forced many of us to think about what were our values and how could we live according to our values. And I became very interested in uh, communal living, living in a community with people and sharing economic resources and sharing places to live and being in community. And at the same time, we valued individual freedom. We didn't like rules being put on us. And we also thought that everybody uh, should uh, be able to do what they wanted. There shouldn't be a hierarchy. You know, There shouldn't be some people telling other people how to do. We should be equal. So we believed in equality, we believed in individual freedom, and we also believed in community. And my dissertation was all about how do you put those things together without making rules, and without somebody being the leader, and how do you resolve those value conflicts that exist in, that exist in our society? And my dissertation was all about that uh, by living in and also studying uh, counterculture communes. So I have gone a long way away from the work that I began, but in many respects, it's very similar in the sense that I'm still trying to understand and promote a sense of community and belonging and participation among people in which people feel they're sharing equally in life and in the community and can make contribution and can make a difference, not only in their own lives, but in the lives of people around them, and especially in the lives of young people growing up in their community. I have to say that that is such an interesting dissertation to really look into, especially when you're trying to combine individuality and community. It's not something that you can really have in 
I think the way that the world works, it's such an interesting concept to even fathom it being possible. Because especially when it comes to, I've looked into different communities that are sort of really available um, just in that community living, because I love the idea of sharing resources. And I love the idea of just having that small little group that you really just rely on and having that small sense of people that you can really have kids around and have a whole group of kids and have a whole group of families. And I think it's, it's so important also to have that feeling, but that comes with a lot of rules, like you said. And I think that sort of takes away that liberty and the freedom to be able to do what you feel is right or to be able to contribute in a certain way. And I think that dissertation definitely sounds interesting and it's not so far off to what you're currently working on and it's definitely a big inspiration to the work that you're looking into today and it's so great that um, it really combines what you started off with with what you're doing now so that it's it's so great to hear. Well, thank you. So going into the interview questions now and talking about where we're here on the show today um, parenting is an especially difficult thing. And I know that so many parents have their own definition as to what parenting is to them. How would you personally go ahead and define what parenting is? First thing I would say is that there are many different family structures in the world today. And I'm not talking about the structure of the family, whether it's a one parent or a two parent or a blended thing, all those things. I'm talking about the practices and skills that adults who are caretakers for children use in interacting with the children for whom they're responsible. That's what I mean by parenting. Mm -hmm. the, the actions and the skills and practices that people use in trying to help raise the children for whom they're responsible. And today I'm really wanting to focus on those parenting practices during the transition from childhood into adolescence as particularly useful and important to consider. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you're saying that parenting, as you would go ahead and define it, is looking into the connection between people. So when you're talking about parenting, the actual like definition of the actual act, how would you go ahead and define what it is to you to be a parent? I would say it would be to, to engage in practices and use skills that will help promote the strength of the relationship between you and that child. And I can talk about how you do that. I will talk about how you do that. But also that encourage the young person because they feel a strong bond to you, a, a strength, strong relationship to you, encourage them to want to follow the guidelines that you set as a parent for their actions. The mm -hmm. rules, if you will, are standards for behavior. We, as parents, have standards for behavior that we think are important for our children to grow up healthy and to not... Uh, end up in, in difficult situations or with, with uh, mental problems, uh, behavioral problems, et cetera. And so uh, the goals for me of parenting are one, to really build strong bond of relationship of affection 
and commitment between adults and the children for whom they're responsible, and also to be clear and explicit about our expectations for our own and our children's behavior, and to share those expectations with our children clearly and explicitly in such a way that they understand why we have those expectations and that they can make a commitment themselves personally to those expectations and standards. And I'll talk about uh, how, how we can do that as parents. Perfect. And talking about some of the misconceptions in parenting, what are some of the common misconceptions on parenting that you, that you usually go through? So one of the things that, I, that you run into is parents who say, look, he or she, my, my child has become a teenager. I know their peers are going to influence them and social media is all over the place and they're influenced by social media. There's not much I can do. I just hope that I can you know, keep the lines of communication open, but uh, I, I know I don't have very much control. So that's one misconception that I can't make a difference anymore. I, I'm, I know I made a difference when they were a younger person, but now I think I'm going to lose control to their peers uh, and to social media. And the other misconception is people who say, if you don't crack down on them, then just stay on top of them and make sure that you know what they're doing and don't, don't uh, let them get too far out of line. Punish them if they need it because that way you'll stay in control. Both of those are misconceptions in my judgment. The evidence is very clear. Parents can and do make a difference in this transition from childhood to adolescence. And parents who focus on maintaining strong family bonds during adolescence can significantly reduce the likelihood that their children will get involved in behavioral problems in dangerous health-risking behaviors. So. Parents can influence their children. How you parent really influences children's behavior right through the teen years. And I think a lot of parents think that they've given up because they don't think they have that power or influence. Uh, other parents who are so, so concerned about it that they are overly strict and don't necessarily recognize that this is a time of exploration and individuation and individual identity development. And, uh, that causes conflict between adults and their children. No, it's it's really interesting to me because I it's very similar to when you're talking about the, okay, you can't do this, you have to punish them. That was the sort of system that a lot of my friends in their teen years were going through as well, where there are so many rules to a point where the child rebelled secretly or they okay you can't have a social media account you can't have an instagram and suddenly they'll go make a secret account on a separate phone that they don't have with their parents and so many secrets developed between them which distanced them even further and it's so interesting as well because the way that i did it was the way that i remember being a parent being parented was going through that idea of, okay, you can always come and talk to me, like trying to balance my parents being a friend, but also them being a parent. And that is something that is fairly interesting because it worked in some respects. However, I think the idea of a parent being a friend is not very, it's not a very easy concept to, to do, and you can't right. always be a friend to a child who is always constantly messing up. Right. 
and I and we'll we'll get back to this uh, because I think that is a problem when parents think that they're friends and not parents. That can be a difficult situation because uh, then they don't feel like they can set standards, and and uh, that's a problem. So we'll get we'll get to this. So we'll get to yeah, this. no, I'm getting so far ahead of myself. <laughs> it is it's yeah. it's so crazy. Um, now going into the whole idea of the topic that we're into today, which is risk behaving, risk task, risk taking behavior, um, especially in adolescence. Now that is such a, I know that's a theoretical word, theoretical phrase for what we're talking about today. But how would you go ahead and define? what adolescent risk-taking behavior is? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that what we know is that the teen years, the years from 12 or 13 to 18, 19, those years are a time of exploring new behaviors and taking greater risks and seeing what the limits are as part of developing an individual identity. Who am I in the world? Risk-taking behaviors conclude a wide range of things. It's trying drugs, trying illegal behavior like shoplifting or entering buildings without permission, getting into fights. It also can be trying extreme sports, deciding that you want to try to learn how to play music or learn how to dance. Those are all risk-taking behaviors for people who, you know, sometimes feel like I'm clumsy when you're an adolescent. You say, oh, I'm ugly and clumsy. I don't know if I really want to dance or if I could really learn to play the guitar or I could really learn to play an instrument that I want to learn to play. Uh, so those are all risk-taking behaviors. Uh, and we should expect risk-taking behavior during adolescence. But some risk-taking behaviors can have long-term negative consequences, both for health, healthy development, and, and, and also for just physiological, neurological development. And so Risk-taking isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's an expected thing. But certain types of risk-taking have potentially dangerous consequences. The use of alcohol and drugs is one of those, is one of those kinds of risk-taking behaviors that can have long-term consequences uh, that really influence people's lives, as we know right now from this fentanyl epidemic that we're all experiencing in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's what I'm talking about. Risk-taking is kind of saying, where are the limits? What can I do? Can I really push myself this hard? Can I really do this? Uh, And it's important to recognize risk-taking behaviors that have potential dangerous consequences for health and well-being uh, and try to limit those kinds of risk-taking behaviors. Okay. And (laughs) in what ways are adolescent risk-taking behavior and parenting linked to each other? Well, it's very clear from research, for people's experiences, I'm sure it's well, but it's very clear that parenting practices directly affect the degree and kinds of risk-taking behavior that young people engage in. Parents have certain values, but how they act, the rules they set, the limits they provide, the conversations they have, the way they interact with their children, the parenting practices that we talked about before, parenting practices moderate or affect the relationship between parental values and children's risk-taking behavior. So parenting can really make a difference in the kinds and nature of risk-taking behavior that kids uh, get involved in. Mm-hmm. 
parents can encourage certain types of risk-taking behavior. Uh, you know, kids who want to learn to, uh, you know, learn to ski or want to learn to skateboard, or et cetera. Those are risk-taking behaviors. Anybody who's seen uh, a kid on a, on the on the slopes of those uh, 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 parks, the the uh, trick parks and in, in ski slopes, yeah. knows it's risk-taking behavior. And anybody who's seen a kid on a skateboard knows it's risk-taking behavior. So uh, those things can be encouraged or discouraged, as can uh, alcohol and other drug uh, use behaviors uh, can be encouraged or discouraged or influenced at least by parenting practice. So mm -hmm. parents have parenting practices have a direct effect on the nature and extent of risk-taking behavior by people. So how do you know that limit between what risk-taking behavior is an okay thing for parents to allow their child to be a part of? For example, you was talking about skateboarding being one of the examples of risk-taking behavior. And I know a lot of my friends, even I growing up, my parents didn't really allow me that idea of, okay, going to a skate park or going uh, learning to skateboard because of that factor that you could break an arm, you could break a leg, you could hurt yourself. However, that to me at that time, and sometimes even now I'm thinking, okay, maybe that would have been a cool skill to learn, a cool, a fun thing for me to keep active and do outside of the house and do on my own. So how do parents know? Um, and is there a way that that is okay to be a, a behavior that you can just go through? I would say that you should expect risk-taking behavior and you should allow and encourage risk-taking behavior. But each family, each individual parent is going to have different ideas about that. Uh, I was a skateboarder. I skateboarded when I was a when I was a young professor. I used to skateboard to work with my briefcase in in my in my hand, you know. Uh, so for me, skateboarding was something that I said uh, when my kids wanted to, my son wanted to learn to skateboard. I said that is a risk. Yes, it is. If you wore a helmet, it would be better. If you wore gloves, it would be better. If you if you're going to skateboard, start slow and easy and learn the skills before you try the, the skills. Uh, and, uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, I think that uh, it does, skateboarding is just an example of physical activity that people need. You need some form of physical activity. If you want to do it, skateboarding or skiing or uh, uh, snowboarding or whatever you can afford to do, I think those are things that, yes, you can break an arm, you can break a leg, you can hurt yourself. But those things mend, bodies mend. If you if you think about things like alcohol use or drug use, those are things that, first of all, we know from a lot of research that the younger you start to use alcohol or drugs, the greater is the risk that you will develop abuse and addiction to substances. And so just delaying onset of substances that we think are illegal and acceptable for adults to use is actually a very good way to reduce risk by delaying onset, by uh, saying, let's not start now. Don't start now. Wait until you're the legal age to, to engage in these behaviors. And we'll, we'll come back to this again. But I think thinking about what are the consequences of the risk that the young person is wanting to engage in 
and what are the long-term health and well-being consequences potentially is really one of the things that parents need to consider. And I know there will be differences in people's values. I, I remember uh, American football is very popular in this country. My dad really didn't want me to play football. And he influenced me enough through his parenting skills to not play football. I became a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer. I swam competitively at Stanford. <laughs> and I didn't hurt. I didn't break anything. I didn't get any concussions from swimming. And uh, I had a very successful career as a swimmer, uh, at least by my standards. And it, I learned and I got in good shape physically by that sport. My dad thought football was too dangerous because he knew too many people who couldn't walk or run or whatever in later life because they hurt their knees or who had uh, problems with brain uh, functioning in later life because of concussions that they'd experienced. Then. So those things are individual and, and you need to just think about what are the potential long-term consequences and can I help guide my child in directions that I think will have the opportunity for risk-taking without neg uh, terrible negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And this dives in really easily to the next question that I'm going to ask you, which is some of the common substances. Um, what are some of the most common substance abuse that are done in, your ad in adolescence? Well, it used to be before we really got smart about tobacco in, in public health, it used to be that kids would start by trying trying a, a cigarette, trying to smoke tobacco. That Adults do that. I want to see why they do that. Must makes people look cool. I think I'll try that. It used to be that tobacco was the gateway into drug use. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's certainly changed in, in the U.S. I know less about Australia. But in the U.S., that's changed. And I would say now the gateway... Uh, is often alcohol and sometimes marijuana. That That's the first substance young people are exposed to and have the opportunity to use. Uh, those are all substances that can be abused, used excessively, have negative consequences. And moreover, what happens often is when people experience the reinforcing qualities of alcohol or marijuana, they say, I like that. And when they have... and and we don't really know yet. We know there's a physiological difference in individuals between their susceptibility to addiction. But we don't know what individual, whether my son Quinn or my daughter Nora would have more uh, likelihood of developing addiction. We can't predict that in advance. But once a young person has a drink of alcohol, they've experienced the effects of it. Some people say, I don't like that. I could take it or leave it. Other people say, oh, that only made me feel good. I want to do that. And for people who have that reaction to their initial drug using experiences, then when someone says, well, have you tried cocaine? It's even better. Or have you tried opioids? They're even better. Uh, heroin is even better than these pills that you could take. You know, fentanyl, it can kill you, but boy, does it get you high. People uh, can, in adolescence, progress through a series of drugs, all of which are potentially abused, starting at the beginning or uh, an addictive, starting at the beginning with whether it's alcohol or tobacco or marijuana, which are the most widely used drugs. But all these drugs have potential for abuse and addiction. 
and uh, and there are young people who get involved in them. The social definition of these substances historically has been, well, alcohol is okay for adults, it's legal for adults, so so I want to probably start there because I want to be adult-like. Uh, I, when I was growing up well, many years ago, I thought marijuana was something that uh, jazz musicians in New Orleans used. I, I wasn't exposed to it in high school. Today, uh, young people are much more widely available. It's much more easy to have access. And so that's a substance that's obviously much more widely used and potentially much more widely abused uh, mm-hmm. because of its social definition. No, it's for me, like looking growing up, you definitely see the because I grew up in a religious school, going to religious schools, and it was always something that kids always talked about and kids always like hid in the bathroom and things like that. And you always saw one kid bringing it in, another person buying it off them. And it's always that underground um, substance. But it was such a especially being in a religious school, it was something that was never spoken about. Um, We were never really, I think they had that mentality, okay, if you don't mention it, no one will go through it. And that was such, like even um, now thinking about it, I'm like the more that you don't talk about it is the more uneducated they are going to be about it. And the more that they're not going to see the behavior that they can develop because of that, like alcohol at a young age, that's why there's a certain limit that's allowed to start drinking it because there's that um, development, especially the, I mean, kids are still developing. We still see teenagers still developing in their brain and that substance use can really affect how they are. And because we don't talk about that, they don't see that. And I always saw it was such a silly thing for not even mentioning the use of alcohol or the use of marijuana or the use of drugs that sort of come along um, because they were too scared to talk about it. Yeah. We'll come, we'll come back to this, but you're making a very important point and it is, it is very important for adults to talk about this. And we're going to talk about ways you can introduce this topic and how you can have these conversations with your child in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that uh, will will be beneficial both to the child's development and also to uh, the likelihood of the use of these substances. So we'll mm-hmm. come back to this. Perfect. And so going into it, are there any specific warning signs or even behaviors that parents should be aware of that may already indicate that a teenager is experimenting or struggling with substance abuse? such as drug or alcohol? Yeah, there are. Uh, what you see is grades drop, old friends are lost, new friends appear, interactions with parents become avoided, kind of hiding from you, uh, going into your room, and uh, sometimes mood changes, uh, surly attitude, sometimes irritability, uh, tiredness, et cetera. These are all kind of symptoms of kids who are so far into using drugs that it's actually starting to have an effect on their behavior. And by the time these signs appear, by the time adults really say, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on here, 
it's usually indicating that a pattern of drug use has already been established and the reinforcing properties of drugs have already been so strong that kids really are into it. And that means that you're going to likely be too late for prevention. You're going to have to do something in the way of intervention. And now you have to fight against how reinforcing those drugs feel to that child. And so you're going to have to get them to unlearn or stop doing something that they have found really rewarding, rewarding enough to hide it from you, to keep it from you, to change their friends, to be able to get it, to maybe steal money, et cetera. And so uh, what I'm really wanting to promote and, and encourage parents is not to avoid, as you were talking about, and just don't talk about it, don't talk about it, it won't happen, but to really recognize that it's likely to be something you need to deal with or will need to deal with. And you can wait until you see a problem and then try to correct it. But doing that is much harder than doing effective prevention at the very beginning before your child has even started to think about using drugs. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to uh, suggest. It's more difficult to turn around a life that's already starting to be influenced in the direction of more drug use than to prevent that in the very first place. So talking so, about, sorry, so talking about the, um, the behavior changing and the symptoms that sort of show that the child is going through that drug or substance use, is that, if the behavior is already showing, is that an indication that's already deep into it? Because yeah. the behavior is affected so much. Yeah, because you, you as a parent, aren't going to, it's just like you said, uh, the kids are, uh, you know, bringing it to school, buying it and selling it in the back in the bathroom. Kids are using it wherever they can after school and et cetera. And parents, it's just often parents don't monitor their children so closely. And that's reasonable. Don't monitor their children so closely that they see the, the little signs and symptoms until those signs and symptoms are kind of hitting them in the face and they say, oh, I better find out what's really going on. Maybe I better search his room or search, you know, and, and now you've got a problem and you could have prevented that problem in the first place with the parenting things we're going to talk about in, in just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. No, that's perfect. Now, going into some of the common misconceptions of substance use, what are some of the myths or misconceptions that are very common in terms of substance use or abuse that you would really like to go ahead and debunk right now? Well, probably the most important one is one that characterizes Australia in contrast to the United States. And that is uh, that since teens are going to use alcohol someday anyway, it's best to teach them to use alcohol in moderation at home, and that will reduce the risk of harm from alcohol use. I think that's a common that's a common belief in in different cultures. It's common in many families in the United States. I want them to learn to drink in moderation, and so I'm going to teach them to drink in moderation at home and let them start uh, drinking when they're teenagers, even though that's not. Uh, legal in terms of the legal drinking age for possession or purchase of, of alcohol. But there are two things wrong with this misconception. 
The first is the evidence that I mentioned earlier. It's very clear that the younger young people begin to drink alcohol, the greater is the risk that they will become addicted to alcohol later in life or abuse alcohol later in life. It's a statistical probability uh, that age of onset, age of initiation, predicts degree of risk for problems later on in life with those, those substances. Uh, and the second thing is that there's actually evidence from both Australia and the United States that allowing teenagers to drink in moderation at home is predictive of higher levels of harmful alcohol consequences. We were involved with the Deakin University in Australia and uh, our university in a big study that we did uh, and between uh, this, I hope I can get the state of Victoria in Australia, is that right? And the state of Washington in, in the United States. Uh, we studied representative seventh grade students in those two states, representative of the state. Samples created uh, uh, over 2,000 uh, students in these, uh, in these schools in Washington and in Victoria. Uh, and uh, that's in a, in a context in which in the U.S. there's kind of a zero tolerance message don't you shouldn't use until you're legal drinking age in, in Australia it's more common for I think harm reduction message to be well if you learn to drink in moderation you'll avoid uh, later problems uh, so what we did we, we sampled these 2000 seventh grade students uh, from schools in each state and uh, they completed questionnaires on alcohol use problem behaviors risk and protective factors from the seventh through the ninth grade and in the ninth grade, we measured consequences of the alcohol use. And we looked at uh, things like whether kids say they were unable to stop drinking once they'd started, or they were having trouble at school the next day after they'd uh, been drinking, where they had arguments with their family, got into a fight, got vi violent, uh, got injured or had an accident, had sex with someone that they later regretted. Uh, got so drunk they were sick or passed out, were unable to remember. So you're thinking about negative consequences of alcohol mm -hmm. use. What we found was that in both states, which had very different norms or standards about alcohol use, in both states, the relationship between family context and alcohol use and harmful use were very similar. Adult supervised use of alcohol was associated with higher levels of harmful alcohol consequences. So adult supervised alcohol use increases risk for bad alcohol consequences in both Australia and the United States. It's the same in both contexts. Although we think as parents we may be teaching kids to drink in moderation, what happens is they don't drink in moderation. They've learned to drink in moderation what we see often here in the U.S., kids who maybe learn to drink at home, when they get to college, they go wild, they go to university, they go, they go wild, they drink a lot, it's free at last, I'm free at last, my parents aren't around, I don't have to drink in moderation. And so I would say one of the misconceptions that many parents have, both here and in Australia, is that if I just teach them to drink in moderation, they'll drink in moderation, and that they won't have negative consequences from alcohol use. The study is very clear. It's in it's in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. Uh, in 2011, it was published, and uh, 
adult supervised alcohol use it results in higher levels of harmful alcohol consequences uh, in spite of what uh, people may think. It's just it's just obvious from the data. So I would say that is the biggest misconception that parents have uh, about alcohol use and, and drug use more generally. That's, it's such a fascinating study to sort of look into, especially because like, you see a lot of these ads and advertisements that go along. I'm not sure how it is in the US, but here we see a lot of advertisements where the father or the mother is asking the child to get a beer out of the fridge and that's it's such a common thing and that's their first look into where alcohol is and where the drinks are and how to get to them and it's as easy as that to be able to get to them that they see it as like they see it as coke they see it as just a way to drink a drink on where drinks are and I always get baffled at the fact that we can just have that and a child is still acting, even though they're acting, they're still acting that out. So it's always important to see that. Involving your child in your alcohol use, letting them open the beer or letting them get the beer from the refrigerator, et cetera. It's bad business. It's bad. It's, I don't mean to say bad business. It's just increasing the likelihood that that child will start using that substance earlier because they've already been exposed to its use and involved in their parent in their parents use of it and so they think well I'm part of this and so I'm going to do this so uh supervised alcohol use or asking your kid to get a beer from the refrigerator or light your cigarette or uh tour the beer for you or the glass of wine for you all those things are not good in terms of they do increase the risk that the child will start using early and that early initiation will have consequences as we saw in the uh, study from seventh to ninth grade in both the U.S. and Chile. And now we're going to be looking into some more of the strategies and I know that I've jumped the gun in so many questions prior to this in terms of what we can do as parents but what are some specific parenting practices or strategies that have been shown to be particularly effective in preventing adolescent substance abuse? So there is a tested and proven foundation for effective parenting to reduce health risking behaviors of all kinds by teens. And it's called the social development strategy. And it's, there are five keys. If you have either hand, if you have five fingers on either of your hands, you can remember this. And this is how simple our theory of human behavior is and our strategy for helping parents be effective in reducing risk for their children. The first thing is that teens need opportunities for active involvement in the family, both in decision-making and in important family functions during adolescence. And we'll come back to how we do these things, but I just want to get the general idea. So opportunities for active involvement. If your home is a motel where the kids get fed, have a place to sleep, but boy, you're saying, you just work on your schoolwork. You don't need to be involved with this family. You know, just do your schoolwork. That's the most important thing you could be doing. If you don't involve that child in helping to make decisions about the family and in family activities, you are creating opportunities for active involvement in the family. The mm -hmm. second thing is kids need the skills to be successful in their opportunities. 
when we first started to do this strategy in our family, we decided we would divide up the chores around dinner time. And my wife said, okay, I'll continue to cook for a while, but everybody's going to learn to cook at some point. I said, I'll wash the dishes. My daughter was young at the time. She said, I'll set the table. My son said he would he would uh, clear the table after dinner and we, at, we would do these things. And we started this. And the first night after we started this, my wife came down uh, after uh, to, to the kitchen the next morning and she said, Dave, I thought you did the dishes last night. And I said, I did do the dishes. They're all clean, Maureen. What, what's the problem? She says, look at the counters. And I said, what about the counter? And she said, well, there's milk stains and, and some plastic bags and crumbs on the counters. When you do the dishes, you wipe the counters as well, Dave. I was the dad. If I, as the father, don't have the skills to wash dishes to my wife's standards, how do I expect my child to do that unless we teach them the skills? It's not a hard skill to teach, but you got to teach the skills. So the first thing is opportunities for active involvement. I could say, I'll wash the dishes. I have the opportunity. But I needed to be taught the skill by my wife that I had to clean the counters as well as wash the dishes as part of that job. We need to teach the skills. The third thing that young people need is to be consistently recognized or reinforced for skillful performance. We need to reward or recognize effort. If I tried improvement, the, night, the second day I did better on the counters than I did the first day. Still, good job, Dave. I love to hear that. And the third thing is uh, achievement. So if we recognize Im effort, improvement, and achievement, something different happens for children. They start to feel affection for the people who created the opportunities, skills, and reward or recognition for them. They start to feel bonded to the person who did that, whether that's a parent, whether that's a teacher in school, whether that's a youth worker or a coach. If you provide opportunity, skills, and young and, and recognition and reward for young people, they start to feel affection towards you, attachment towards you, and they feel committed to you. They don't want to let you down. Mm -hmm. That's called bonding in the social development strategy. That's the fourth element. The fifth element are clear and explicit standards for behavior. Bonding provides the motivation to, the to live according to the standards for behavior offered by that social group. If you feel bonded to your mom and she says, Dave, I want you to do your homework or please clean your room, you're more likely to do it than if you don't feel bonded to your mom. If you feel bonded to your mom and she says, you're going out tonight, I know some of the kids will be smoking or drinking. I don't want you to drink or smoke tonight. Here's why. And I want to remind you of the reasons that we have this family standard. You're more likely to follow those instructions from your mom, those standards, if you feel bonded to her. So the whole thing about prevention is create opportunities for active involvement in pro-social life, create the skills, teach the skills to do that, recognize and reinforce effort, improvement, and achievement, and people will become, kids will be become more, more bonded to you. This works in workplaces as well, works in school classrooms, it works in all social settings. And when you feel bonded to someone, you're more likely to live according to their standards. This, this, mm -hmm. and so that's a social development strategy and thinking about that in 
all family interactions is really important because, you know, they used to talk about a war on drugs. We're not really in a war on drugs. What we're really in is a battle to increase bonding to pro-social people and activities because street gangs work the same way. If, you, if a gang member says to you, hey, you want to be part of this gang? Well, what do I have to do? Beat somebody up till they bleed. That's an opportunity for active involvement. Oh, if I have the skills to beat someone up till they bleed, what happens? I get my gang colors. That's reinforcement or reward for skillful performance. And then I'm becoming bonded to a group that doesn't hold the healthy standards for behavior. So I hope that example of the negative side of, of the social development strategy is important because we as parents need to make sure that we are creating opportunities, skills, recognition, building bonding in our families so that our children will want to live according to the standards that we think are important for their health and life. Mm -hmm. So I guess when it comes to that idea of a child, either in the good way or the bad, you're talking about either parenting standards or the gang standards or things that's sort of expected, the negative and the positive. So I guess in a way, a child really does need that sense of community and that sense of belonging especially if they're looking for it, if they have to look for it elsewhere, it means that there's something in their parenting that isn't really matching up to what the child feels that they need. That's right. It could be in their parenting or it could be in their school. If hmm. a child is in school and the teacher isn't creating opportunities for active involvement for all the kids in that classroom, there will be some kids, if the time, I, we won't get into teaching. I, I, there's more about the same thing in teaching, but I, I, what I would like to say is that if you have this idea, these five, these five things that you can do as a parent, you can start thinking about how do I create more opportunities for active involvement in this family? How can I create, create opportunities, develop skills, et cetera? And a good place to start this is to say, how about thinking about having a family meeting? with your whole family in which we get together to talk about something that we turn all the social media off, the TV off, the music off, everything is turned off and it's just us talking together. This is a special important time. We don't get very many chances to do this. Let's have a family meeting. When could we all do this? And everybody goes, oh, I got practice here. I got, well, I, you know, I find a time when you can all sit down together and, and talk. And uh, get everybody's input on when the time is. That's opportunity for involvement, just getting me for input. Oh, you can't make it. Then I've got to practice with my friend or I want to play. Yeah, so, uh, and, and the first meeting, if you haven't been doing family meetings, the first meeting is a meeting to plan family fun, something we could do together as a family, everybody involved, that would be fun. It's useful in that first meeting to set some basic ground rules for the meeting. Don't interrupt someone else when they're talking. One person talks at a time. Don't interrupt another person. Don't put down someone. If they have an idea, say, well, I want to go to it. And don't say, oh, that's ridiculous. I hate that. Don't put down other people. There's some basic ground rules for how to have a meeting so that it doesn't become a time of conflict. Make sure we all agree to those ground rules. And then let's brainstorm. Give everybody a chance to say, what would you like to do? Uh, 
as a fun activity we could do as a family. And depending on what resources you have, it could be a small thing like something we might do this weekend on a Saturday morning, or it could be a family vacation that we're thinking we might be able to afford to take. And uh, we should, and, and so instead of saying, oh, let's go here, let's, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go to Uluru. Let's all go to Uluru. And the kids say, oh, I'm, what is it? Why would I? Let's get input from everybody. That's an opportunity for active involvement. And then we can think of who, what do we want to do and we can make a decision as a family. That's really a good practice. And especially that's opportunities. You've learned the skills of having a meeting. You're going to need those skills all through your life. Uh, and the recognition is we're thinking about something we're going to do together as a family. And if you do it together as a family, you're building bonding because it's more time to get. So the first meeting that you do should be something like that. Plan family fun together. And, uh, and then on later meeting, it doesn't have to be the next meeting, but it's useful to think about getting a schedule for Rick for family meetings every Tuesday night or once a month on Tuesday night, whatever you can afford the time and build the time that everybody can be together in this way. Then a next family or a later family meeting can be about alcohol and drugs, at which we say, as parents, we want to talk about this topic, alcohol and drug use. If you start this when your child is 10 or 11 or 12 years old, it will be before they've had their first drug experience, likely. And therefore, it won't be threatening to them that you want to talk about this topic. Um, so that's a good time to, to start. Uh, this kind of thing, if you haven't been doing them at age 10, 11, 12, 13, uh, before they've used those psychoactive uh, substances. Um, and it's, it's useful to start by thinking about people you know who have had an alcohol problem. And often there's someone in a family, Uncle Jake or, or, or Grandpa or somebody you know is a neighbor who's got an alcohol problem. And you can talk about that and ask your kids, what was that person like? And what did you think of that person, et cetera? And young people often describe those as not desirable activities or, you know, they didn't like the way that guy was, you know, it smelled bad when he was talking to them, et cetera. And so you can then say, we would like to develop some standards for what's okay and not okay in our family to set some standards for behavior. Let's talk about it. And the important thing is to develop a set of standards that everybody will agree to. The younger your kids are, the more likely they are to agree to your standards at the, at the outset because they haven't tried it before and they haven't used it before. And if, if we all agree that you're not going to use in the next, it's okay for dad to smoke or drink, whatever it, you say adults can do this in this family because it's legal and it, uh, it, and we may decide that you shouldn't drink so much. Maybe we should limit our drinking as adults. But let's also set standards for you as a young person. And if the kids buy into those standards, let's also set consequences for following the standard as well as consequences for violation of the standard. So that you don't find so that kids don't have this situation where they come home some night and you can smell alcohol on their breath and you say, you're grounded. And 
The kids never agreed to that in advance. If you agree in advance on what the rewards are for keeping the policy, as well as what the punishments are for violating the policy in advance, you're not going to get so much feedback from your kids about, that wasn't fair. You never said that was what was going to happen. And so it's another opportunity for involvement for the kids to agree to the standards and say, okay, and the re reward is, what's the reward? Well, I'll just tell you a story. When my We did this when our kids were little, much younger. And when my son Quinn was 15, we were cleaning up after dinner in our in our house and my son he had agreed not to not to drink uh when he was 14 13 and we are he was 15 now he was uh learning to drive uh getting a driver's permit and uh and he said to me as we went into the kitchen he said dad i'm gonna start drinking well first of all how many kids tell you that in advance give you an opportunity to talk to him about it well mm -hmm. he did because we had a rule that we'd all agreed to and he was about he said i'm going to violate the rule i want you to know i'm going to do this and i said quinn and i started with all my science about you know the earlier you start drinking the more likely you have trouble and every time i'd say that he'd say he'd say uh that's not convincing dad and then i said you know we have a family history there are people in our family who have had problems with alcohol and family history of alcoholism uh, can mean you have greater risk because that's not convincing. And mm -hmm. finally, I said to him, Quinn, you're about to learn to drive our cars and we're going to allow you to drive our cars. But I don't want you drinking and having been a person who drinks as a person who's a young person learning to drive. And therefore, I'll make you a deal. I have learned that it's going to cost $1,000 a year for us to have you on our insurance policy extra, $1,000 a year extra. If you will agree not to drink for the next year, I'll pay that premium. He says, that's convincing. And he didn't drink for the next year. And then a year later, I said, do you want to re-up again? And I'm sure that my son didn't drink until he was out of high school and, and uh, going off to college. In fact, we kept this deal for a long time with greater rewards ultimately promised if he continued this behavior. And mm -hmm. uh, I even know that he did this because I would talk to parents of his friends who said, oh, the kids are at our house and some of the kids are drinking. I noticed Quinn didn't drink. And I said, well, that's great. I'm really glad to hear that because uh, it meant that he was keeping his word and, and following through on that. So I'm just giving a couple of examples of how you could use the social development strategy to actually start to confront this challenge that we're talking about of kids wanting to uh, use alcohol or drugs and remembering to reward or recognize them for giving up something that is rewarding. Why do people drink? Because they like the feelings of it. You're giving that up if you don't start drinking at the age of 15 or 16 or 17. You should get something in exchange for that. Uh, and that makes it easier for you to, to tell your friends why you're not drinking. You know, it costs me a thousand bucks if I get caught drinking. I, I can't afford that. I'm sorry. I, I can't take that risk. Um, so I have one other thing that I will suggest in terms of a practice that, uh, would be useful. If, yep. if, if the son or daughter, if the child has agreed not to use drugs or alcohol, not to get into trouble with those kinds of behaviors, then 
it's also uh, useful uh, to teach what are called refusal skills to your son or daughter or to your children. Um, and this is a good time to do it again at, at this age 10 to, to 14. So now it's going to be a time when your, your, your child is with other friends and your friends will say something like, hey, let's go over to Benny's house. And you know Benny, but not really very well. And you know that Benny may be uh, is a marijuana user, but you don't know. And so the first skill to ask, to teach your child in this kind of situation is ask questions. What are we going to do at Benny's house? Well, he's got some weed, man. We're going to try to smoke some weed. Well, if you've made a commitment to your family not to smoke marijuana, you know that that's trouble. And so the second step is name the trouble. Say, wait a second. I, uh, that's trouble for me. If, if, uh, if, uh, if I smoke marijuana, I've made a commitment not to smoke marijuana. So first is ask questions. Second is name the trouble or the problem behavior. That's illegal use of, of, of a drug, and that's trouble for me. And the third thing is name the consequences. If I did that, I would be in trouble with my parents, and I would probably be grounded. I know I'd lose my uh, insurance deal that I have with my dad, uh, so I don't want that consequence. The fourth step is suggest an alternative. Instead of going over to Benny, why don't we come to my go to my house and let's shoot some baskets? If your friend says, no, I want to go to Benny's and get loaded, the fifth step is leave and leave the door open. Well, look, I'm going to be at my house. I'm going to shoot some baskets. I'm going to get Jim to come over. We're going to play basketball. If you change your mind, come with me. What that does, teaching those five skills, ask questions, name the trouble, name the consequences, leave, uh, suggest an alternative, leave the door and leave the door open to your friend to be able to join you instead. What that does is put your kid in a leadership position. He or she is not saying, no, no, I can't do that. That'd be wrong. He's saying, I want to do something else that's fun. Why don't you come my way? So it puts them in a leadership position. It allows them to have fun and still have a good time and not do something that risks their health. And so those are just some examples of uh, parenting practices. One last one, when your child is entering adolescence, divide up roles in the family. There's a lot of things families have to do. They have to balance a checkbook. They have to keep technology current. They have to clean the house. They have to clean the property if there is property. They have to uh, wash dishes. They have to cook. There are a lot of things that have to be done in families. Divide up those roles. It's opportunities for involvement. It's also opportunities to learn skills that you'll need later in life. Uh, and uh, often young people are the ones who know how to d deal with technology better than parents or grandparents like me. And so having them uh, get to use those skills and to keep the computer uh, running in the family and uh all the technology working is a way in which they can get recognized for their their special skills. So uh, that's just another way to operate the social operationalize the social development strategy by thinking about what are the roles we have to do, which ones would you like to start on, and having job job exchange over time so that young people learn different roles in the family. Uh, it increases bonding and commitment to the family. It also uh, 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 increases kids' ability to feel confident of who they are and what they're capable of doing. So those are just some suggested practices. 
They come from a program that we developed and that has been tested independently by researchers in the U.S. called Guiding Good Choices. And if you want to learn more about what I have just been talking about uh, uh, and how to do it, uh, if you go to www.communitiesatcare, all one word, .net, and scroll down to where it says Programs and click on Programs, you'll see Guiding Good Choices. If you click on Guiding Good Choices, you scroll down, you will not only see the results of the tests of Guiding Good Choices, but you also see some family activities that you can engage in that are along the lines that I was just talking about that you can come right, take right off that website and, and get started. And what I would say to you is in a rigorous, randomized experimental trial conducted independently by other researchers uh, of the Guiding Good Choices program, those who got the, in the Guiding Good Choices program compared to the control group were 41% less likely to use alcohol or marijuana than controls, 28% more likely than controls to remain drug-free through adolescence, and 54% less likely to progress to the use of other drugs like cocaine, methamphetamines, and opioids than the control group. So Guiding Good Choices provided to parents when children 11 and 12 years old also significantly reduced the rate of increase in depressive symptoms during adolescence and significantly reduced the rate of alcohol use, uh, I'm sorry, alcohol abuse by young women through the age of 22. You can do something at age 11 and 12 that will have effects on your child's risk all the way into their, into their 20s and, and beyond. So, uh, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but there are several strategies that I think uh, people yes. can can get engaged in. Yes, no, I think there there are amazing strategies in there, and especially when you're talking about the bonding aspect, like we were mentioning a little earlier in the show, there is some huge sort of connections that can really be made between, and the importance, I think, especially at the ages of 9, 10, till about 13, just when they start become a teenager, there's that huge aspect where you're probably needing to bond with them more than any other time in their life. So talking a little bit more, how does parental monitoring, monitoring play a role in preventing or even reducing some of the adolescent drug and alcohol use? Parental monitoring is really an important behavior that shows adolescents that their parents care about them, their health and their well-being. Monitoring is most effective in maintaining and strengthening bonds between parents and children when it is inclusive but not invasive. Inclusive but not invasive. Finding time to ask your child each day about how would your day went, that's inclusive monitoring. It's not invasive. Asking family members to share the good things as well as the things that upset them that happened this past day or this past week is a way of monitoring. Um, welcoming your son or daughter home if they've been out in the evening with a hug and a kiss is a form of monitoring. You can smell if there's tobacco or alcohol or marijuana on that child. And so you can monitor without being invasive just by making opportunities to hug your child when they come home uh, from, from, from being gone. And it's, it's showing love. Uh, so 
asking them about their evening, to tell you about your evening when they came home. And if your child starts to describe the evening, you'll be able to know if he's drunk enough that he's not speaking very well or not. So just that is monitoring. You don't have to sit down and inspect something to be monitoring. Interactions that are inclusive and that are loving uh, are monitoring. Sometimes parents may think something's amiss. Asking direct questions about behavior, have you been smoking, gives the child an opportunity to answer truthfully. And if you have a strong bond, your child may, may want to do that and tell you. Because especially if they've made a commitment not to, they may want to be able to tell you, this is what happened, this is how it happened, etc. If If parents are still concerned, they've asked directly, they didn't get an answer that they thought might be the truth, uh, they, you may want to talk to the parents of your child's friends. Have you seen any change in my child's behavior when you he's over at your house? What Anything that you notice, anything? Finding that is less invasive than starting to go through your child's room to see if there's any hidden, hidden paraphernalia or anything like that. That's invasive. When you get to that point, uh, it should be a last resort because it's an invasion of privacy. And it shows that you're not trusting them. And and it shows concern, but it doesn't strengthen family bonds. And so a good rule of thumb when you're monitoring and thinking about monitoring is monitor in the least invasive way necessary to learn about your adolescent's behavior. So a hug when your child comes home is a lot less invasive than when they're gone. You're saying, I'm going to look in their room and see what's going on. Uh and and so you may have to do that at some point in time. But again, it'll probably because you've seen so many symptoms and signs of a problem, this change in friendship, the decrease in grades, et cetera, that you maybe have a, a bigger problem on your hand than if you had done a, a little more monitoring, less invasively. Or... Mm-hmm. Okay. that's It's such an interesting idea of having that idea of monitoring a child and especially I love the hug idea of okay it seems like okay I'm gonna be actually showing affection to my child whereas there's a ulterior motive that's a little bit more sneaky than um than the child would even expect you to do so that's such an interesting aspect of looking into seeing if your child is going through those uh, phases or going through those situations without really directly having to invade their privacy in any way. So I think, especially when it comes to invading the space that the child is sort of set, okay, this is my room, this is my space to really just be myself in and express myself. And then that being invaded, that can definitely be a loss of trust between the bond that took ages to build can be lost in a few seconds. So that is such, um, to get to that point must be a really difficult situation to go through. So I cannot imagine how that would feel emotionally, even for the parent to just have to know that they're evading the space. But usually it's because the symptoms of behavior, when people get to that place, often it's because the symptoms of behavior are are just hitting them in the face. And it probably is you're at a point now where you really need to confront the problem because if your child is that committed to the drug use, uh, it's going to be important to try to see if you can turn that around sooner rather than later. It's treatment, intervention and treatment are very difficult. 
it often people talk about alcoholism as a chronic relapsing disease. You know, people get out of it and then they fall back into it and get out of it and fall back into it. You really want to try if you see if you can prevent that in the very first place in the ways we've been talking about. And if you do find that your child is having these difficulties, you really do want to do an intervention and try to begin the process of treatment and recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, This goes in well with the last section of our show, which is the open mic. Um, Now, I think we talked about what you were wanting to speak about, which is sort of talking about communities that care. And we spoke about it a little bit throughout the show, but I love to get a deeper understanding as to what communities and care is and how it can be a resource for a lot of parents, um, not just in the US, but also in Australia and other countries that might need that kind of support. Yeah. Uh, It's called Communities That Care. And again, www.communitiesthatcare.net is a place you can go to learn about this. What Communities That Care is, it's a system that whole communities can use to assess the degree of risk factors for adolescent health-risking behaviors, uh, as well as to assess the degree of the protective factors that we talk about in terms of opportunity, skills, recognition, and bonding, uh, and clear standards. Uh, and we, we do this through a survey uh, that has been actually administered in Australia nationwide, as well as in communities that care communities. And uh, therefore, there are norms regarding those sta- those uh, risk and protective factors in terms of how prevalent they are. So favorable parental attitudes towards drug use is a risk factor. Uh, lack of parental monitoring and supervision is, is a risk factor. Parents don't know where their children are and who they're with when they're not at home. We ask these questions in a survey that takes about 50 minutes uh, once every two years. We ask it of kids who are in the U.S., they're 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, so approximately uh, uh, 13, uh, 15, and 17, something like that, in those age ranges. And uh, that allows us to see both what young people report anonymously about the risk and protective factors they're exposed to. Do my parents know where I am and who I'm with when I'm not at home? If they say no, that's information about parental monitoring not being adequate. Uh, If they say yes, that means parental monitoring may be adequate. If a lot of kids in a community say no to that question, then in communities of care, the coalition that's doing the communities of care work will say, oh, we have poor family management or poor monitoring of children as a risk factor that's prevalent in our community. Let's find a program for parents that will help parents learn the skills to do better and more family monitoring. And we take them to guiding good choices, strengthening families 10 to 14. There are menus of evidence-based programs that we use in communities of care. Once a community has gotten together, the key leaders of the community first start by saying, we want to bring this system into our community. A mayor, police chief, school superintendent, business leaders, religious leaders, media leaders, uh, youth worker leaders, all those people are the people who shape opinion and control resources and communities. If they say, we want this to be a community care community, they then identify a coalition of stakeholders in the community that represent the diversity of that community that they want to use this community care system and process. Or they create a coalition 
by ensuring that the whole diversity of that community is represented in the coalition. The coalition collects the survey data, looks at the survey data, and makes decisions about which priority risks are widespread in this community. Those are the ones we really want to focus on reducing. Uh, which protective factors that we talked about do we need to strengthen? Then what programs or things already going on in this community could we make more widespread or be, make more available to people in the community because they're already happening here. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's just do more of it in more places with more families so that we get this happening community-wide. Or perhaps we don't have a good parenting program for parents of kids entering adolescence. Let's find one that will work in this community. Let's kick the tires, look to see if it really would work in our community, given our community and its values and norms, and then choose one and implement it with fidelity. And then the survey is repeated every couple of years so that we can see is the risk factor that we targeted actually going down or not? If it is, keep going doing what we're doing. If it's not working, we need to do something different to make that risk factor go down. And what we've seen in communities is that you can really see the change in risk and protection with risk going down and protective factors going up. Uh, it's just dramatic in Australia. There were four initial communities that did uh, communities of care and compared to the national data. And what we saw in the national data was that bonding, that sense of relationship and bonding to feeling close to your parents, to your teachers, to people in your community, that's actually going down in a national level in Australia. But in the four communities that were doing communities of care, that was actually going up. It's the trend is in the opposite direction. Uh, and as a result, these four communities, which started at higher levels of adolescent drug use and delinquent behavior than the national averages, actually came down to or below the national averages in those behavior problems. So communities of care is a system that I would really encourage communities to look into. John Tulbaru at Deakin University uh, is uh, the leader of the Community Secure Initiative in uh, Australia. And there is a community secure organization that provides training and technical assistance to communities that want to use community secure. And I would really encourage people who want to promote the healthy development of young people to look into and uh, get access to community secure. And so to double check that again, it's www.communitiesthatcare.net. That's it. Okay, perfect. And we'll definitely have that down in the description in our YouTube platform in the description down below. So if um, audience members would like to get a deeper look into it and peruse through the website and see, are there any resources that are also available there as well? Yes. Yeah. If you look at under programs, you'll see, you'll see, uh, you'll see the parenting program uh, guiding good choices that I talked about. And you will actually, if you scroll down there, you will actually see activities that you can do with your family. Uh, similarly, within the community care system, uh, there are good uh, instructions and guidance for how to bring community care into your community and uh, implement it successfully. So uh, we tried on that website to really make it easy for people to who are concerned and interested in promoting the well-being of young people to get access uh, to the tools uh, and uh, training and materials that we've developed. 
Oh, that is that is amazing. It's nice to see that it's all in one place as well. It it's not, it's just clicks away. It's not typing yeah. anything or anything. Right. It's very simple. It's all right there. And that is, I think, for every parent who's unable to even be away from their kids for a few minutes without things going crazy. I know in my household, it, it, is, it does get like that. But it's so good to have that everything's just click buttons away and easy to figure out. So that is that is amazing. Um, thank you so much, David, for joining me on the show today and for talking about um, adolescent behaviors and even substance use and abuse. And I think I think it's very, uh, it's just, it's reiterated what we all seem to think, what I seem to think about substance use and abuse and how parenting sort of goes along with it. Um, it's so amazing to see that there are companies or corporations out there that are really looking into how to develop a community that really does look out for each other. And it's so inter interesting to see even further that there are scientific evidence that's backing up the fact that it's important to be around a community. It's important to have kids that are a part of a community, not just live in a society where it's all about them. So it's it's really nice to see that. Thank you. So if um, if anyone would like to get in contact with you, David, is there a way that they are able to reach you directly? Um, my email is a very simple email. It's my initials, jdh at uw.edu. Okay, perfect. Well, I will have that down along with um, the Communities That Care uh, link. I will also have your email down there in case any audience members would like to probably talk about things that I definitely would have missed or even things that I didn't um, talk about further. So it's great that there is that availability for the audience members there. So I want to thank everyone for joining David and I on the show today and for talking for taking part in this and talking about communities that care because I think it's such an important organization to really develop even further and to bring I'm glad that it's brought into this into Australia and I'm glad that we're talking about it here and it's something that Australia is taking part in and hopefully more than four communities will take part in it and we'll be joining into it very soon so thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys in the next episode you've been listening to Raising Parents the Parenting Science Insights Podcast Produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.